Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to this bonus episode. It's a bonus because we've just reached 15,000 listens across the 58 different episodes, and I thought it would be fun to put out something a little bit different. So this isn't an interview. Um, This is actually from a presentation that I was involved in giving last week, and it was aimed at social enterprises, charities, and not-for-profits. And during this presentation, we touch on legal structures that are best to use, employment, intellectual property, contracts, liability. It's a really wide-ranging conversation. I gave the presentation with Chris Morrison, who's a colleague at Perryfield Lawyers where I work, and the intention was to answer the common questions for people who have startup ideas. I really hope you enjoy it and find it helpful. I actually really enjoyed doing the presentation because we were able to answer many of the questions that we commonly get from startups, and so we've summarized all of the best bits into this presentation. And if you enjoy this episode and think it's helpful, then consider sharing it with somebody else who's on their startup journey. One thing to note is that I did edit out the questions from the audience because the audio on them was quite low, but where possible, I tried to repeat what the audience person had said so that hopefully it will make sense in the context of you now listening to just Chris and I talking. And just a quick note to say thanks to all of you for helping to get to this 15,000 listens milestone. It really helps to see ratings and reviews going up And I really love to get feedback from you, the community of listeners. Now let's get into this discussion about startups, social enterprises, charities, and not-for-profits. All right, if I can get your attention, um, we're going to get underway. Um, Thank you all for coming this evening. Um, My name is Stephen Moe, and this is Chris Morrison. And um, we come from Perryfield Lawyers, um, as you can see up there. We call this a legal mashup because what we want to do is take... Well, first of all, we want to answer your questions, and, but we don't want it to be limited to any one particular topic. So the sector or the area that we're focusing on tonight is social enterprises, not-for-profits, and charity, and there's a lot of crossover between those, and some might even say what is one and what is the other. Um, so we want to explore a little bit of that, and I know some of you have ideas for social enterprises or charities or not-for-profits, so we're really keen to hear from you as well. This isn't just a, we're going to talk at you all evening. Um, um, But to start with, I just wanted to ask a question, which has to do with this. First of all, what is this, an avocado? And what's the potential that this avocado has? Yeah, sustenance. You could put it on toast. And I heard somebody say, be a tree. That's the real potential of this, isn't it? And the amazing thing is if you buy this um, from a grocery store and you take the seed and there's, if you look it up on YouTube, you can find out, you put little toothpicks in it and put the bottom part in water, it will actually start growing. Um, I don't think it will probably produce down here, but it will grow. So this is an avocado tree that I've started growing and you can see the, the seed there at the bottom. So one of the things that we're trying to do here is to empower each of you, because each of you have seeds of ideas, and we want to empower you to be able to grow and, you know, flourish. And and what we find is that we get the same questions over and over from people um, who are keen to start a social enterprise or a charity or whatever. And so this is going to be an efficient way for us to deal with it, because 
all of you probably have similar questions and you're on a journey. So, um, so that's really the, the purpose of this evening. Um, so just a little bit of background about me, um, and then Chris will introduce himself. So as you can hear, I have an accent, but you have to be careful not to let assumptions um, guide you too far, because I actually moved to New Zealand when I was seven years old. So I actually grew up here. Um, we, my dad was a marine biologist, a really unusual job, and it brought us here to raise salmon. So I actually went to high school here in Christchurch. I went to Canterbury University. I worked in Wellington for three years at a national law firm. And then I went overseas for 11 years. And I was in London for three years, in Tokyo for four years, and Sydney for four years. So um, my kids came home singing the Australian national anthem. And we thought, oh, this is interesting. Identity is forming. Not, you know, it's a beautiful place, but is this where we want to be long term? So we came back about two and a half years ago, and I joined Perry Field because I felt like they were a firm. It was a nice medium-sized firm that does a bit of everything and that um, could have a real impact and, and make a difference there. So that's a little bit about me and my background. And Chris, why don't you introduce yourself? So my name's Chris. Uh, I am a lawyer at Perry Field. I've been with Perry Field for about 16 years. Uh, 2002 I started. That's when I shifted to Christchurch as well, so I'm originally from the North Island. Uh, however, uh, I have six children, and four of them were born in the South Island, and they've all sort of grown up here, so they certainly consider themselves uh, mainlanders, I guess. Uh, so I think, I think I'm stuck here now, <laughs> for better or for worse, and actually I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I love um, Canterbury and um, love being able to get out into the mountains and... Uh, uh, do a bit of skiing or go for a walk and all those sorts of things. So it's a great place to live. But in terms of work, um, yeah, I, I, have a, I have just an interest in, in helping people to move their purpose along in terms of what they're trying to achieve uh, and certainly a desire personally to work in a way that A, puts food on the table for my family, um, but that actually has some meaning behind it as well and is helping people um, to pursue the purposes that they have that are a bit beyond just sort of financial provision for their family. And so something like this, uh, uh, just a good opportunity, I, I, I hope, um, to, to help people a little bit further along the way with some of those kinds of ambitions. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. So um, what we'll do is we thought we'd just talk about a few topics to start with. And then we're going to open it up for questions and then just have some interaction. And then it's up to you to guide us as to where we go. <laughs> we, we don't really have a set agenda. Um, but I think one thing that probably does unite us is an interest in social enterprise. So I thought we'd start there. Um, so just a question, like how many of you are interested in starting a social enterprise or you have one already or it's a sector? Yeah, so it's a number of hands. <laughs> um, so just to... Just to begin with, um, I'll just say a few words and then Chris can fill in anything that I've left out. Um, the first thing is, you know, what is a social enterprise? And I think the, the word itself, I find, um, is, is quite helpful because you've got social, which has to do with the purpose side of um, what the endeavor is trying to do. So whether that's an environmental or a, some humanitarian or some social thing. And then the enterprise side, which is the profit side, and it's the business that's sustainable and making money. 
And traditionally, I think what we've done is said, well, business is about the mind and you know making hard decisions and numbers. So that's over here, and we focus on profit. And purpose, that's kind of about the heart. What is it that's beating within you? Like there's a purpose behind it, and that's um, more of a softer thing. So that's more of a charity type of thing. And you end up with this separation between sort of the mind of business focused on profit and the heart of charity focused on purpose. So social enterprise really tries to take the mind of business and the heart of charity and bring them back together, you know, align them together. And I've found that that's a helpful way to think about it because um, it can be difficult to work out what it is we're even talking about when we're meaning social enterprise. And that's partly because there is no legal definition of social enterprise in New Zealand. Um, so you can be a charitable entity or you can be a non-charitable entity. There's no sort of tick this box and you're definitely a social enterprise. So um, this is something that um, Akina is looking at quite a lot. And if you haven't come across them, you should check out their website. They've got a lot of great resources. Um, but they're doing some scoping around um, legal structures and what should or shouldn't be uh, within the definition of social enterprise. And it's actually quite a fun project, and I get to be part of it, talking with social enterprises and working out what would be good or what would not be good if we were going to have some kind of a legal structure. So it's kind of early days. There's many discussions to be had, and it, it needs lots of voices. Um, but the, just setting the scene, the point is, there's no, you, you might, on the road, you might choose to become a limited liability company or you might choose to become a charity and you can still be a social enterprise whichever road that you're going down. Um, so the, the key question that I always ask people is, so let's say you've got your idea, the, the first question is always, where do you wanna be in five years or in 10 years? And the reason that's important to ask is that if you decide, um, I've kind of laid out the two roads, right? The charity side and the for-profit business side. If you choose to go down the charity road, then there's certain implications of that. And that has to do with the fact that you can't have private gain from being uh, having set up a charity. So Chris and I have seen examples where people you know, 10, 15 years ago, they set up a charity, they've worked in it for years and years. A setting up a charity or anything, it's gonna be blood, sweat, and tears. You know, the entrepreneurial journey is not easy. And then they get, you know, 10 or 15 years in, and they want to move on, and they've been able to draw a salary or, you know, be employed, but they actually don't own themselves the intellectual property or the charity so they get lots of pats on the back well done but maybe don't get um, the ability to sell what they've done um, so that's i guess one consideration and then the other side is the the, the for-profit company like that if you go down that route then you are able to one day sell things um, and sell shares or gain investment into it so that's a positive of that side of things but equally, it's actually quite hard to get investors when you're explaining to them that there's other purposes beyond profit in what you're trying to do. So you're kind of left in the middle of um, 
wanting the best of being a charity and the best of being a for-profit company sometimes. Um, but, the, but the key point here is, you know, in five or ten years, do you want to be making some money privately or personally, or is it more about the cause that you're involved in and, and promoting the cause? And, and I see, I think we see both examples of people who come through our doors, you know, that some people genuinely, it's just about the purpose. We just want to achieve it. It doesn't matter about the money. But for other people, it is important that there's, um, you know, income being generated and potentially dividends or profits that go to them um, privately. And I actually, I actually don't have a problem with that. I think we need, it'd be great to encourage more people to be doing social enterprises that actually generate profits so that we didn't just have people going out to create the next Facebook or, you know, that they actually had greater goals in mind that they were giving back through whatever it is that they've chosen to do. And one way to encourage that would be to say, hey, you don't have to be a martyr to charity and give up everything. If you've got a great idea, there's actually this middle way, which is sort of the social enterprise. Um, so that's a really high-level overview of some of my own thinking and thoughts, you know, having talked with many social enterprises. Um, and we have put out this little booklet um, called Social Enterprises in New Zealand, a legal handbook, um, which if you want, I can email to any of you. So it's just a PDF. We've, actually, this is probably the last copy. We've kind of run out. <laughs> but I'm happy to email that out to people. So just contact me if you're interested. So anyway, those, that's some of the thinking around social enterprise. I don't know if that's um, helpful. But um, yeah, before we take a question, Chris, do you have anything you wanted to say on social enterprise? Uh, no, I, I, what I'd like to do is just invite a bit of feedback from everyone. So a few of you put your hands up and said that you were, um, I'm not sure whether, it, I can't remember the question now, whether it was you were interested in social enterprise or involved with social enterprise. For those of you who are involved with a social enterprise, what sort of legal structure sits behind that social enterprise? I'd be interested to hear what, what road you've taken in that sense. Okay, that's good. So we've got a UK-based company slash charity. <laughs> we've got a church which operates with charitable trusts, and we've got a limited liability company as well. So it just shows the spectrum, doesn't it? There's a wide variety of, um, of options. And I think that one of the things is that there's no easy answer here. There's no one-size cookie-cutter fits all. Um, it really does depend. But I do feel for, you know, with Zoe and your endeavor with the company, you know, going to people to get funding and not having the charity number restricts accessing grants, but equally the benefit of being able to get investors, it doesn't quite fit the commercial returns of a normal investment. So you're kind of caught in the middle between both sides, aren't you? Yeah. Okay, well that's good. Well, I think it shows the spectrum. And we had a question before, is that right? Yeah. 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 So the question is, are there other options? Can you transition from charity to company or company to charity or other, other ways? I think what, what we often find is that people start as one and then realize they're missing out on the other. And so they end up becoming usually a charitable trust that owns a company. 
and that's very common. So um, there's a great example in um, Christchurch of Pathway, which helps um, ex-prisoners reintegrating back into society, and they're a charitable trust, and then they have two limited liability companies that operate. So it's trying to get the best of both. Um, it's probably worth mentioning there are other, other options as well, like partnerships and sole trading and, you know, the, there, it isn't just company and, and charity. It is very common for there to be change along the way as well. Um, we see that all the time. Um, I can think of one charity that I'm involved with, um, which started off by um, actually establishing a limited liability company and then after they received some advice, they, they realised actually for what we're trying to achieve, it makes more sense for us to be a charitable trust. So then they created a charitable trust and incorporated that. Uh, and that did make sense. Um, now there's a particular uh, project um, or separate um, venture that they're working on. And if that succeeds the way that they're hoping that it might, it will make sense to incorporate a limited liability company to operate that particular venture. Um, so it's quite an interesting journey there. Actually, it was started just by volunteers, no, no legal structure at all. Then they went to a limited liability company, then to a charitable trust, and now potentially bringing in another limited liability company as well. Another um, education-focused, it was an edu education-focused business, uh, which decided to, uh, the owners of the business decided that they would set up a charitable trust and sell the business to the charitable trust because they thought that that would enable them to access more grant funding so that they could grow the scale of, of the services that they were providing. Um, but what, the, what they found actually in, in, in working through that process is possibly what others of you who are in the charitable space have found, um, the competition for grant funding is pretty fierce. Uh, and even having the right structure to be eligible doesn't necessarily help you to get that funding because there are so many other charities competing for the same funding, which I think is one of the reasons why the whole social enterprise um, discussion has really picked up in the charitable sector because people are saying there must be a better way to have sustainable income to achieve our purposes. Mm. Yeah. So if we talk a bit about some of these basic structures, you know, there's no one size going to fit all, but some of the other things that you should be thinking about if you're in the process of setting up um, is getting a good governance body involved. Um, so this is, if you're a trust, then that would probably be the trustees. Um, so thinking through who is going to be um, providing guidance, who's going to be helping you, and if you're a company, who's on the board of directors. So in either structure, how many do you think is the right number to be on a board? Any ideas? There's no right answer, so don't worry. <laughs> Hi? I've always thought an odd number. An odd number? Yeah. If these decisions that need to be voted on, yeah. you've got. So a three or a five or a seven? But yeah, I've always looked at probably around the five. I think we should invite them up. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's basically right. We've had situations where people have said, um, I've got 12 people lined up to be on my board. And you just think, oh, can you imagine setting a time 
for 12 people to meet. Like it's just, they're never gonna be available at the same time. And what we're encouraging people to do now is think about you know three at the very beginning or five, but then having um, what we're calling an advisory council as a way to bring people in that you respect. You want them involved, but um, they don't necessarily have to be board members, you know, um, and that can be a smaller group or a bigger group, but it's a way to legitimize their input as well. Um, so it's not a strictly legal, you know, I'm an advisory council member, but you are involved in that organization. And I think people are quite, um, you know, flattered to be asked, would you like to be an advisory on the advisory board. Um, so that's one strategy. Because one of the other things to think through is who is it that's sitting around the table? And have you got a diversity of voices? You know, like have you got somebody with a bit of accounting background? Or have you got somebody who's pretty good at marketing? And you know, like trying to get not just all the same people as you, because um, that can be a danger if you're just basically echoing what the other person was gonna say anyway. <laughs> so yeah. Do you have any thoughts on? I, I, I guess my only other thought as well is that it is really important to be probably be thinking about um, who your target audience is for whatever you're going to be doing or who your target customers are or, or however you're going to phrase that. And then to what extent are they represented? Do they have a voice? On, on your board as well. So I think Stephen's right to say about, to say there should be a focus on having a breadth of the expertise that you need on the board, but also also having a breadth of voice on the board in terms of uh, perspective, you know, the sort of the, the client or recipient perspective and, and how, do you, how do you achieve that as well. So uh, covering that range. It is, yeah, the bigger the number, the harder it is to, to reach a decision. I think that's a, that's a really valid concern. And having an odd number certainly helps, although just about every organisation that I've been involved with has always tried to reach decisions by consensus. Um, and if you're consistently being deadlocked on decision making, I think it probably, uh, there's probably some other issues going on there as well. So I don't think it's the end of the world to have four or six. Mm. Um, there have been the odd occasion where somebody's had to make a decision and it's, and it's been helpful to say, okay, well, you know, we've, we've thrashed it out, we've heard all the views, but we need to make a decision and move forward, so let's go with a majority vote. But it doesn't happen as often as you might think that it does. Hmm. If they become directors or... or Or trustees or... It is legally permissible. So for a company, for example, you have to have at least one director who's based in New Zealand or Australia is the other option. But if they're in Australia, they have to be a director of an Australian company as well. Mm. Um, so, but you're only one, so you can have multiple directors who are overseas persons. That is permissible. Mm. And likewise with a trust, you can have overseas trustees. Uh, depending on what sorts of um, status or grant funding or whatever you're going to be applying for, um, very often they'll want to know what the connection to New Zealand is. Um, and so again, having at least some representatives from New Zealand is very helpful in being able to demonstrate that connection, but mm -hmm. legally it is permissible to have overseas trustees. Mm. Yeah, which comes back as well to the charitable purpose of 
if you're going down the charity route, you know, making sure that it's based in New Zealand? Mm. I would actually probably be thinking about having different legal structures in different com countries uh, for a couple of reasons. And you may not necessarily do that right from the start, but with a view to getting there. Um, one reason is if you're hoping to attract donor support in those various different countries, there'll need to be a recognised charitable status in the relevant country so that uh, somebody donating in Canada or the US to a New Zealand charity is unlikely to get any sort of tax benefits in their mm -hmm. home country. Um, so that would be one reason for, for doing that. But also from the New Zealand perspective, um, so as a charity, um, in order to, unless you're a, what's called a Schedule 32 charity, in order to be eligible for donor organisation status in New Zealand, you have to be applying your charitable funds wholly or mainly in New Zealand. Uh, and um, wholly or mainly is a concept that IRD are um, pursuing at the moment, because up until, up until this year really, mm. um, the accepted position has been that wholly or mainly means more than 50% in New Zealand. But IRD have um, challenged that in the last, well, probably in the last couple of years. They released a discussion paper where initially they, they said wholly or mainly should mean 90% or more in New Zealand. So that'd be of grants that you were granted by New Zealand? It's a very, no, well, no. Uh, as an organisation, you have, if you're a New Zealand, New Zealand re registered charity to get those charitable benefits in New Zealand, you have to apply it wholly or mainly in New Zealand and they say, they had, they had said that means 90%. So, uh, it's not really a question of where the money came from. It's a question of what percentage of the money that you're applying mm. are you applying in New Zealand. They've, they've, they've come back from that, and uh, uh, if it's likely that your percentage that of funding that's being applied in New Zealand is going to drop below, you know, what's the number, 75%, 66%, somewhere, uh, then you're not going to be eligible for donor organisation status in New Zealand yeah. in that scenario. Yeah. So just coming back to the, um, like the structure that you choose, we talked about the um, governance, the importance of good governance. Um, one of the other really critical things that I think people don't spend enough time on is what's your mission, um, articulating it really clearly. So um, sometimes we see people come in and there's, there's an idea but we ask them to go a bit deeper, like, okay, well, what exactly are you going to do? And they can't crystallize it well. <laughs> and it is worth spending a lot of time um, working out. It doesn't have to be long, you know, it could be three bullet points, but being really clear about what your mission is, who is it that you're trying to help or reach or um, be involved with. Um, so th in that sense, um, having a statement is is really important and one of the things we're doing a lot with social enterprise companies that we're assisting is we're coming up with a new template for social enterprise companies so there's never really been a template because it hasn't existed you know two years ago even nobody it wasn't really a common thing so this template um, right at the beginning has a clause that says what the mission is of the company and then really all of the provisions that flow after that hinge back to what the mission was stated to be. Um, so I think that's really a rigorous thing. Um, with charities, you often will go through this process because you have to prove 
if you're becoming a charity that you are um, achieving charitable purposes in order to get um, registered as a charity um, with charity services. So it does force you to think through what's my purpose. And if you're heading down that route, the key thing is it's not just good stuff, you know, like it's not just helping people learn about this particular thing. Um, it has to be within the four heads of charity. Um, so that's advancing um, education, relief of poverty, advancing religion and purposes beneficial to the community. So those are kind of the, the silos, I guess. So just because you have a good idea, my point is just because you have a good idea, it doesn't mean that it will necessarily be a charitable um, purpose. So one of the things that we spend a lot of time with people doing is reflecting on what they want to achieve and expressing it um, in a way that shows the charitable parts uh, and the purpose that they want to achieve. Yeah. Yeah, we're just in the process. So we've used it with a couple social enterprise clients. And yeah, it's something that we're still refining and developing. Um, yeah, but if you're interested, happy to have a discussion about it and our intention is that we will you know we keep making it better and um, hopefully it will become something that can set a standard because right now there's not really anything yeah yeah exactly so in it we um, cause number one is simply this is a company that's there um, you know uh, existing as a social enterprise. Clause number two is what's the mission of the company and being really clear about what that is. And we used it with someone up in Auckland actually and they, they, they articulated it in three bullet points and it was really nice. <laughs> um, and then um, there's some optional causes which if we wanted to go deeper here, there's, we've put in an asset lock cause which talks about what you can do with the assets if the company winds up. That's kind of a controversial topic because some people would say you, you don't need to asset lock and others would say you should asset lock. I don't think you need to, to still be a social enterprise. And then we've got an advisory council as an optional thing. And we've got reporting standards like how often are you gonna tell people how you're doing on your mission. And then we've got something about profit redistribution, what percentage of your profits are gonna go back into the mission so most of the causes that come afterwards relate back to the mission and how it's being fulfilled. And I think that's really important to have that rigor around here's our mission and here's how we're actually taking concrete steps rather than just here's our mission and that's all, you know? Yeah. So in New Zealand, if you're a limited liability company, you'll be incorporated under the Companies Act 1993. Uh, the Companies Act has a whole lot of rules in it about what you have to do to properly operate a company. Uh, it's not compulsory to have a constitution for a New Zealand company, but you can have a constitution and it can add to and modify, in some cases, the default rules in the Companies Act. Uh, and it can deal with things like um, rights of preemption relating to the sale of shares, um, rights to appoint directors, how meetings happen, how voting happens, what kinds of shares you can create. Uh, so there's a whole range of different things that it can cover. There's a, there's a bit of flexibility as to what you can put in your constitution. Well, there are some rules, so there are some things where you have to follow what the Companies Act says, 
but there are some areas, and, and, and mm. including mission and purpose statements as an example, where there is a bit of flexibility and an ability to be somewhat creative with, um, with, with how you draft your constitution. So it's not a mandatory document, mm. but it can be, a, it's often a helpful document for other reasons, but if you're a social enterprise, it can be a very helpful document in terms of publicly documenting your purposes as a social enterprise. Yes. Because it's a public document, so anyone can search the company's register and see, does this company have a constitution? If so, what does it say? And if the shareholders have resolved to adopt a constitution, they do have to abide by the rules in it. So for as long as that constitution is in place, they're fixed with it. Mm. Uh, um, so again, a lot of it's possible to be a charitable limited liability company. Uh, and if you are a charitable limited liability company, then it's it's essentially it becomes mandatory to have a constitution that does impose those charitable restrictions on what you do. Mm. And the point is that this is a publicly available document, which is why it, it forces the directors to publicly say, here's our mission, our purpose, here's what we're doing with our profits, here's a bit about our dividend policy, and you can, you know, you can specify how many directors there will be and things. But then equal with that is something that isn't necessarily public, well, it wouldn't be public, a shareholders agreement. So that's a document which is private among the shareholders of the company. So it's, people get confused about this, but basically constitution is public, outward facing, shareholders agreement is private, inward facing, and it says that Chris and I own shares in this company, and here's how we're going to treat each other regarding that investment. So that's, that can be important because we might agree something like if I want to sell shares to this particular person, then do I need to offer them to Chris first or can I just sell them without going to him? And so we might want to document that type of thing in our own um, private document. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so we've covered a bit about governance and we've covered a bit about some of the documents that you might need. Um, we could go many different directions now. One, one thing I'd like to raise is intellectual property because I think it's important. You probably have an idea which is unique or different and I think it's important that you are aware of what intellectual property is and um, the importance of making sure that you actually own what you think you own. So Chris and I have had an experience where a client um, yeah, thought they owned something and went back and checked the agreement with the web developer, you know, the person who'd helped them, and actually there was a clause there that said that they did not own what they thought they owned. So that makes it very difficult if you come to sell your company or you think that you own software that's been created for you, for example. So the, the key point here is it sounds basic, but read the terms and conditions of your suppliers and make sure that you own what it is that you think you own and then be clear about what it is that you're creating that is of value. So that, that can range from logos and names that you can actually trademark, and that's actually not a difficult, expensive process. It's about $150 to do that, and there's lots of great guidance on the IPONS website. Um, so we sometimes will just say, rather than having us do it, you should do it yourself, you know? Like, it's, it's fairly straightforward. Um, so that's one, one type of intellectual property is the name and um, you know, website 
domain names, um, but also just thinking through what it is that you own. Is it something that you're going to keep as a trade secret so that nobody can find out about it and therefore um, they won't know how you do it? So that's the sort of the, the, the secret sauce of, you know, the secret recipe of Coca-Cola or, you know, special ingredients that are used that you don't know how they make it taste so good. Um, or do you want to go down a more formal route like a patent and actually try to patent your idea. Um, so obviously every situation is unique and different. Um, with patents, it can take time and cost money. And I've seen some people get so engrossed in making sure that they've patented and protected their idea that they forget that if they just focused on being the market leader and actually gotten on and done what they were thinking they would do, they probably would have outstripped any other competitors. So it's kind of a balancing act there in terms of how much you need to focus on protection versus just getting on with your idea. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on IP. It's one of those things where it's important to start the way you mean to continue by being careful and documenting what you're doing and keeping records of who's creating what and all those sorts of things. So it's, a, it's an area, like others, with any sort of new structure that you set up, you do actually need to um, put some record keeping in place right from the start. Mm. Um, yeah. I wonder whether we pause at this this stage and just see are there any other particular questions that you have that 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 we can mm. we can answer. There's a number of topics we can talk about, but you've probably got questions. So, mm. can I just before we go to that question, I just wanted to show this. So this is the Startups Legal Toolkit. So it's a book, it's about 100 pages, and it covers many of the issues that we've been talking about, but it probably goes into more detail than we could, <laughs> um, given the context of this environment and things. But we've got chapters in here about intellectual property and ongoing duties of directors and you know different things. So if you're interested, again, happy to email it out to people. Just um, drop us a line. Uh, so the question is really comes back to employees for 20 hours and then they volunteer for 20 hours and any yeah, crossover and difficulties yeah so one thing would be what's their job description as an employee how many hours so if you're saying it's 20 hours a week to achieve this job description is that a job description that can be achieved in 20 hours or are you um, actually asking them to do something that even though they're volunteering beyond that in truth, it's just it's just achieving the the, the paid employment that's been agreed to anyway, um, and depending on remuneration rates, if the actual hours that they they're working are significantly longer than the agreed hours, you, you might run into issues with it if if you're getting close to the minimum wage, for example, or going below that. Um, so that's one area. If the volunteering is is truly and clearly distinct from the employment, then um, it could be okay. I mean, in practice, it, it, it happens. It's, it's certainly not uncommon for somebody to volunteer beyond um, their paid employment. Uh, you know, that happens in lots of different fields. And, and I guess at the end of the day, part of the question is, is that particular person ever going to, you know, take a personal grievance against you and say, you haven't been paying me enough per hour for the last three years you owe me, you know, calculate it with reference to the minimum wage and if somebody's 
passionate about what you're doing, it may be that that's a low risk, pragmatically speaking, with that person. Uh, but to the extent that there is a possible confusion between what's paid employment, or, you know, the job description, or there's, there's, there's no clear demarcation between the job description for the paid employment and the volunteering, then there potentially would be issues with that. Yeah, well, I think part of that is carefully defining the job description mm. uh, and saying this is what we're paying you for. Mm. If, it's, if, if it's a contractor scenario, then if, you, so if, if somebody's an independent contractor and they agree a fixed price for a job and they're genuinely and properly being treated as an independent contractor, then that's fine, no problem with that. If they are in substance an employee, um, then there's still going to be an, a, a potential an analysis or argument as to how many hours was it actually required to complete that work. You know, for, for your average employee, how long would it take them to do that work? And you're still going to have to comply with obligations like the minimum wage obligations. Mm. Yeah. So in order to be a charity, um, you have to exist for a charitable purpose. In order to re register with charity services, there's some key things that they want to look at. First of all, what are the charitable purposes that you're trying to achieve? Um, and so in your case, it, would, it sounds like advancement of education is going to be there, so you're probably going to be okay on that front. Yeah. Uh, and, and then they also look at issues like, um, can anyone benefit privately from what's going on here? Uh, and if this entity is ever wound up, where are all the assets going to go at the end of that process? And in each, in each of those cases, it needs to be basically, no, nobody can profit privately from this. They might be able to be paid a fair market wage for what they're doing um, or, or for the services that they're supplying, but they can't profit um, beyond that. And in the case of winding up, the, the proceeds of the assets or whatever need to go towards charitable purposes. Mm. So there's some things that you have to do to meet the, the requirements to be registered as a charity in New Zealand, but a, it's possible to adopt a constitution for a limited liability company that achieves, that ticks all of those boxes, and therefore that company becomes eligible to be registered as a charity. There are a couple of interesting questions about that. One is that under the Companies Act, the shareholders under the Act can, can vote to to replace the constitution at any, any, at any time. Uh, and so, as a matter of legal principle, even if you've adopted a charitable constitution, the shareholders have a statutory right to revoke that constitution. So there's an interesting question there that nobody's really uh, addressed. Um, You, yeah, so once you're registered as a charity, you're going to be reporting to chari charity services. And also, even if you do revoke that constitution and cease to be charitable, it's going to have some pretty significant tax implications for you. Um, so there'll be a 12-month period, and at the end of that 12-month period, then there's an income tax payable on the capital value of your assets, for example, some, th some things like that. So, so there are some safeguards in place. But, uh, uh, the, but the other thing, if you are a limited liability company uh, and uh, as a charity, the other question that is an interesting question and doesn't have a single answer is who will the shareholders of that company be? Because you still need to have shareholders. So will there be a charity that's the shareholder or could a private individual be a shareholder? And actually the answer seems to be that a private individual could still be the shareholder. 
um, but they can't personally profit from the activities of the company, which is unusual because in order to be validly a charity, you can't have private individuals profiting. So even though they're a shareholder, they have to be a shareholder that has no ability to profit. Um, so, mm. but there are a lot of there are a lot of charitable companies registered in New Zealand. Um, I would say most often they are charitable companies that have been set up by charitable trusts. The shareholder is a charitable trust. Um, in some of those cases, they choose not to register the company as a charity, but in other cases, they say we want the company to be a charity as well. Mm. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic actually. <laughs> once you start getting into it, and just to pick up on the charity thing, since, since there seems to be a bit of interest. Um, We've done some, again, some information about how to apply to become a charity, but one thing to bear in mind is that there is um, time involved. <laughs> so it doesn't necessarily take us long to help to draft a deed or a constitution that will tick the boxes of being charitable, but um, you send it away to charity services, and right now you get an email back that says, thank you for your application, we'll be with you in four months. So there's definitely a lag. So just if you are thinking about going down the charitable route, make sure you build that into your timeframes um, because it can take longer than people expect to get that. You know, and they may have questions as well. So could it, be it, it could be longer, yeah. And they can backdate it, uh, but even so, you're going to have a period of uncertainty until yeah. the decision comes through. Yeah. Having said that, there is a way you can ask for a fast tracking if there's a special circumstance or a need. So we acted for um, a church recently which was going to do some building and they had a deadline that they had to have it done by. They had a funder who wanted to give them the money to do it right now and those seemed to be enough reasons for charity services to process it. It was fairly straightforward application and I was shocked at how quickly I got it back. <laughs> Honestly, it was like, wow, <laughs> that was very fast. So it can happen, um, but I wouldn't put your eggs in that basket for sure. Um, it is a definite process. Um, we, we were involved in a conference earlier in the year in um, April held at Te Papa, and there were 200 people who came together who were accountants and lawyers and not-for-profits. And um, we actually recorded all of the sessions using that camera and uploaded them on a website. So again, if anyone's interested, we can send you a link. And there's like 12 hours of content about charitable purpose and what should be and what shouldn't be in social enterprise and impact investing and what does the future hold and all that. So it's quite interesting. Um, I think what we might do now is sort of wrap up the formal part. Um, I'll be around for a bit longer if you have questions and we're happy to take them. Um, maybe just some things to finish off with. Um, we have a website called perryfield.com. Um, is it .co.nz? Both, yeah, yeah, both will work. I both will work. Um, <laughs> either one is fine. But if you go there, um, about halfway down, there's something called Change for Good. And that's like a sub-website of our website. And it's all focused on not-for-profits and charities. Um, our firm has been around for 70 years. This is actually our 70th year. Um, and traditionally, we've done a lot in the not-for-profit sector and only relatively recently realized that social enterprise fit within that as well. So we've put up a bunch of templates, articles, 
videos and free resources basically for people who are interested. So that's the Change for Good website. And then we have another one called Innovate, which is really focused on startups and what you need to think about when you're in the process of setting up and starting up. So that's at the same place, you'll see it, you can find it easily. And again, we've got templates and documents and information available there. Um, and I just wanted to mention as well, on, on the tables there, I've put um, a sign-up sheet because we try to email out for people relevant information. So if you're interested, we have an email newsletter for like the Change for Good charity area. Um, and we'll try to do these sessions every, this is the third one we've done. And I think we enjoy it. It's fun to get out and meet you all and um, so we can let you know when they're coming up. Um, but also if there's updates like this, this sort of stuff, we'll, we'll let people know. And um, the, other, the last thing is that we're, I'm doing a podcast called Seeds. So there's some information on the tables as well. So every week on a Tuesday morning, I'm uploading an interview. And today I uploaded the 57th interview, and that's all been done since September last year, so in, in a year. So basically one a week, and really focusing on entrepreneurs and social enterprises and trying to tell good stories about what people are doing. Um, so Zoe over here has been on the podcast, if you want to hear about TalkTown and her work with deaf children, it's really fascinating and um, real variety. My aim with it is to surprise the listeners that every week you'll be like, oh, that's completely different to the previous week. So um, I recently talked with someone about nutrition and mental health, and today it was about open source software and um, whether that's a good thing, which he thought it was, and I tend to agree. <laughs> so it's quite, quite, um, yeah, just trying to get some good stories out in Christchurch because there's a lot going on here. Um, so yeah, I'm just looking for people to help to spread the word about it as, as a good way to tell stories. Jason, did Jason, you have it? Yeah. Do you want to do one of them and I'll do the other? <laughs> <laughs> well, limited liability company, I'll do that one. How about that? Um, if you're unsure where it's going to go and whether you may want to profit personally in some form from what you're doing, then it's better to start with a limited liability company. Uh, it's more flexible in that sense. You're not locking yourself into saying, I'm definitely going to be charitable. So, so um, and then commercially, in terms of getting funding, financing from banks, those sorts of things, they understand it, it fits their model better. Um, it's not that they don't lend to charities, they obviously do, um, but a limited liability company that they can see is operating for profit, fits their, ticks their boxes a bit easier. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And then for the charity side of things, for, for better or worse, there's still an association that a charity is a good thing and people will give you money if you're a charity. <laughs> so uh, uh, that's the first thing. It's just the status of are you a charity or not? Oh, you're a charity? Oh, you've, you've gone through some hurdles and I trust you. So there's that part of it. And then the second thing is if you're, if you're a registered charity, then you actually can give tax-deductible receipts to people who donate funds to you. So, you know, with Zoe, if you go out to people and you say, hey, I've got TalkTown, would you like to donate me money? Maybe they will, but if you say you'll get a tax deduction, you know, you'll, you'll get some reimbursement of your donation, then they're more likely to um, give you 
those donations. Um, but the downside of it is what we've been talking about is that you can't get private investors. So you can't say, hey, Chris, would you like to invest $15,000 to get 100 shares in my charitable trust? You can't raise money that way. So it does limit your um, ability to, to access funding if you're a charity. There's, there's, there's no limitations other than um, what the trading activities need to further the charitable purposes of the charity. Um, so you can actually, you can, and, and that can be furthering it in an indirect way. So you can sell um, a product that's not that closely related to your charitable purposes if you can justify that as helping you to achieve those charitable purposes. Mm. So that's the constraint. And that actually raises the point that I was making before about mission and purpose, like what are you doing? And having it clearly articulated is so critical because we've actually seen situations where people haven't read their trustee that they've been appointed as a trustee of. And actually that should be the first step. Like if somebody asks you to be a trustee, one of your first questions should be, can I see the trustee? You know, it's an honor to be asked, this is wonderful, but what are you actually asking me to do? Because the purpose, what happens sometimes, let's say it was set up in, you know, 1963, and nobody's really gotten the trustee out for that long, and then you open it and it's like, oh, what we're doing now is drifted from what we originally, our purpose said we were doing, and maybe we're no longer within the remit of our original purpose, which is not a good thing. <laughs> so that can happen. And we even had, we've, we've seen one of our colleagues where he was helping a charitable entity and they had lost their deed because they were set up like a hundred years ago. And so nobody had read the purposes <laughs> for decades. <laughs> um, and then they eventually found a copy and you know, yeah. So just on that point as well, if somebody asks you to be a trustee, of a trust, it's fine to do it, but you are taking on liability as a trustee, so don't just do it for the sake of the honor of having been asked. Actually think about it and make sure that you're aligned with what they want to achieve, um, because it's, yeah, it, everybody loves to be asked, would you like to be a trustee, but I think sometimes the trust themselves um, are doing a disservice to their potential trustees by not informing them and actually explaining what it is that they expect if you become a trustee. The problem is we're desperate for volunteers, right? <laughs> Need people. So I think it just remains to say thank you so much for coming out this evening. You know it's a wintry day, but um, spring is on the way and um, we just wish you all the best with your various ventures across so many different sectors and areas. It's been really good to chat with you and hear your questions and um, yeah, just feel free to drop us an email and we've got different resources that we've mentioned. Um, but thank you very much for coming out. Thanks. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed the content of that episode. As you could tell, it was a bit different because we were talking about a number of different issues that startups face. I mentioned as well at the end that there were a bunch of resources, including templates and videos and other things. So I'll put a link to those in the show notes, and you can find those down below in the description of this episode. 
Well, thanks once again to everyone who's listened and helped this show get to 15,000 listens. You're a part of that community of listeners now. If you have time and inclination, then please take 20 seconds to leave a rating or review of the show. It really helps to get the word out to others. Until next time.